Dr. Smith has been, uh, in the past, he's been a senior pastor in a number of churches. He's been a church planter, a uh, preaching professor at Southern Seminary, and uh, about, a, I guess, I guess, man, about a, a year, a year and a half ago or so, a friend of ours uh, who is a pastor of Jesus Our Redeemer Church in Federal Hill, Brad O'Brien, and I got together for lunch, and, and Brad said, what, do you, what would you think of uh, Kevin Smith as uh, being called to, our, to, to lead our state convention? Because Brad was part of the team that was looking into that. And I thought, that would be amazing, but I doubt he would. Um, I've, uh, I've looked up to Kevin Smith for a number of years. I've sat in some of his seminars, which you probably don't even know that, actually. Uh, some church, uh, uh, some preaching conferences, and um, listened to him preach in the past, and was really just, uh, just felt very blessed when uh, he was asked if he would consider be, being uh, the executive director of our state convention here in Maryland, and he said yes, and he came, and uh, so he is uh, really leading a network of churches that we're part of called the Baptist State Convention of Maryland, Delaware. Uh, which which is encompasses both of these two states, Maryland and Delaware, and uh, he's a great man of God, a great preacher, and excited for him to bring us God's word this morning, Dr. Smith. I'm gonna assume that you never have short guys preach here. <laughs> I greet you in the name of Christ, our Lord, who's the head of the church, and uh, my wife Pat and I counted a joy to be here with you. What a joy to sing together about the goodness of the Lord. Uh, what a joy to sing hymns that have been in the church for a long time to sing Shailen, to sing Israel Halton. Uh, what a joy to have brass, strings. What a joy to be able to worship the Lord that way and to declare together that Jesus is Lord and thank him for his wonderful salvation. I want to invite you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. And I'm very impressed. This year I'm preaching through the Baptist Faith and Message. And uh, most churches I go, I have to read the article. But you, um, we read the article together, the introduction to the article on God. And so I won't read the whole article. But just being a denominational type guy, I did bring some copies of the Baptist Faith and Message if you don't have them, and you can stick it in your Bible and use it for a little study thing. There's scripture references under there, and each one is lined up with um, the particular article that's being addressed, and obviously today we read about God, which is the second article of the Baptist Faith and Message after the scripture. And I want to hone in on some language there that says, To him we owe the highest love, reverence, and obedience. And something we don't often think about, I know we don't celebrate this often, and I rarely hear it mentioned 
um, is what you see there listed in your worship guide, the jealous God. The Lord our God is a jealous God, and we don't frequently hear that articulated in American Christianity. Obviously, we have the push of things like ideological pluralism, syncretism, inclusivism. And when I say ideological pluralism, I don't mean the acknowledgement that there are many people in our country making many faith claims. That's always been the case. That's why God prepared his people to go into the land of Canaan. When you get into this promised land, do not worship the idols that they worship. So the presence of idolatry, false gods, competing truth claims, competing religious claims, that's nothing new. But um, an ideological approach to pluralism says, oh, yeah, that's great, great and groovy. Ain't that cool? And God has never given us the impression that it's great or groovy or cruel, cool. Syncretism would be the desire to blend various religious beliefs together and come out with some new Hegelian conclusion from taking all the contrast and the distinctions and blending them together. Um, there's a helpful book, God is Not One. God is One, written by a sociologist at Boston University just, that just merely gives honest credibility to the truth claims that different religions make and says, hey, when you look at these truth claims on their own, obviously they're not talking about the same God and they can't be reconciled into one. And then inclusivism is... Let's have this thing we call Christian truth or Christianity, but let's be open to blending some other elements into it. And let's be so open to say, well, perhaps there's people that are really Christians, but they just don't know it. That certainly is foreign to the scripture as well. And so what I'd like to do today is just kind of go back to the beginning of God's revelation of himself to his people. Shout out to Hampton University back there. Yeah. <laughs> 1989, yeah. <laughs> um, what I want to do is go back to God's beginning of his revelation to his people, which you might even think of as being um, a marriage God making a covenant with the nation of Israel. I shall be your God and you shall be my people. And the covenant being sealed by blood. But if, if, if first impressions matter, let's hone in on these first words of this revelation. We call this the Ten Commandments. The, 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 the Jews call this the Ten Words. The beginning of the words. The beginning of God's revelation of himself to his people. Um, and remember, the... the, the the article, the second article in the Baptist Faith and Message is God. The first article is Scripture. So this is a nice uh, uh, intersection between the proclamation of God's Word and how that relates to God's character and how he reveals himself to his people. One thing that's very comforting, and I hope you will find this comforting, in all of the midst of the challenges that we're dealing with in our culture and society and broader world, the Lord God 
does not change. So we can have church 2.0, we can have American culture 2.0, but God is the same. We can have globalization or we can have protectionism, but God is the same. We can have a time of peace or we can have a time of war, but God is the same. And I pray that that would be a comfort to us the followers of the Lord God, to know that he is the same. And God spake these words, all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. One of the challenges of our much of our Bible memorization or Sunday school and children's discipleship and the way we approach things is, you know, the latter parts of the ten words that address our relationships with one another, honor your father and mother, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet. We, we, we kind of get used to, like, the Ten Commandments in ten sentences, blah, 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 and really miss uh, some of the weight of the first two or three where there's more explanation as it rides along with the character of God as he, as he is describing himself. And so it's helpful to remember the Ten Commandments and teach them to your kids with those ten sentences, but it's also helpful to realize that the earlier commandments, so especially the first four that deal with our understanding of God, and the, the latter six deal with our relationships with other humans, with one another, but the ones that deal with our relationship with God, they, they, they were expanded upon because they were rooted in the character character and the nature of God. Now, the predominant revelation of God in the Old Testament is, I, the Lord your God, am holy. Holiness. I am holy. One of the clear ways that God identifies himself. The business card, you might say, that God uses in the Old Testament is, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's always the business card he extends when they forget who he is. And that's how that relationship begins here at the beginning of the 20th chapter. And God spake all these words saying, I am the Lord your God which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. These words are spoken to the Israelites who came up out of Egypt and the mixed multitude that came out with them. These words are spoken to the people that God is bringing unto himself, the people that God has changed their status, the people that God has delivered. Please note, these words are spoken to these people. Please, please think of all the people in the world at that time that these words were not spoken to. 
These words were spoken to the Israelites and those who were with the Israelites. I am the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. If you just think chronologically and stick along with the story of the Exodus, these words are spoken to the Israelites at Mount Sinai out in the wilderness, and these words are not spoken to the Egyptians. These words are not spoken to the Canaanites that they shall encounter when they go into the promised land. These words are spoken to those who have been changed by God, and God is now drawing them closer to him and revealing himself to them. The word of God is true. The word of God is perfect, pure, righteous, altogether lovely, but it's confusing sometimes when the saints seem to be amazed that those who are not God's people don't care to hear what God says. And so I'm not mad at anybody, but, you know, when, I'm, when my friends are writing and they're saying, well, the Bible says this about immigrants and the Bible says this about foreigners and strangers, and I want to say, I mean, you think that they have having Bible study over in the State Department? <laughs> I mean, you think they're having Bible study in the West Wing? I, I mean, if you want to voice your opinion as a citizen, I, I hope you would voice it in some other way than the way you would voice it in Sunday school. This word is given to the Israelites not to the Egyptians or the Canaanites. So the Egyptians or the Canaanites don't know God's ways, and since they've not been delivered by God and brought through the Red Sea and don't have that type of experience or relationship of being changed or made new or being born again by God, they don't care what God says. Don't you remember Moses said, God said this, and Pharaoh's like, who's God? that I should care what he says. And so I hope as we try to be salt and light in a fallen world, I, I hope we can have some kind of dialogue with the world besides Sunday school dialogue. They don't care about proof text and scripture. And they, they don't even, thankfully they don't care because they don't even know that half of us use the Old Testament hermeneutically incorrect. This word is given to the Israelites and those who came up with them. And it's like the revelation of marriage. I have delivered you, and now I am revealing myself to you, and it's an exclusive revelation. I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So before we try to figure out how is this person understanding the Lord's word? How is this person responding to the Lord's word? Do they believe in the sufficiency of the word? Do they want to obey the word? We need to figure out, have they had an encounter with God? Have they been changed? Or, 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 or in John 3 language, have they been born again? Please don't forget Paul saying that the things of the Lord are spiritually discerned and the natural man does not discern the things of God. Our public discourse needs to be informed by the fact that we understand that God reveals himself to his people and those who have not received a revelation from God and been changed by God 
we, we need to speak to them differently than we would speak to a brother or sister. You say to a brother or sister, hey, the word says this. The brother or sister is like, oh. There's conviction power. If a person has not been born again, then saying the word of God says this has no conviction power for them. They say the same thing Pharaoh said. And God speaks to his people. And if first impressions matter, check out this first impression. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Wow. Wow. First impressions matter. Every now and then I'll stumble up on one of those videos where somebody, they, they record in one of those dating shows, like when you're in a cafeteria or something and you like sit at a table for three minutes and talk to somebody and y'all rotate and all those kind of things. I hope nobody in here did this. Our culture has like really desperate ways now to meet people. We've gone so far from, hi, what's your name? <laughs> but it's, it's interesting. Sometimes in those first two minutes, people say the strangest things. Like you wouldn't just meet somebody and say, yeah, I've always wanted to get married. <laughs> I mean, I teach at Southern Seminary, and guys are learning theology. Guys are learning the, doc, the Bible. I feel bad for women. You know, we have guys at Southern Seminary. I believe in the sovereign Lord of God, the God of all creation, and you are predestined to be my wife. And other girls are like, "Woo, let me get out of here. I mean, I can't go marry this Jebusite, but at least he ain't crazy. No, first impressions matter. Look how God starts this. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The first thing that God declares to his people is his exclusivity. It's the first thing he declares to his people, his exclusivity. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Ah, so obviously other gods are already part of the equation, so the contemporary Christian shouldn't be all impressed and blown away by pluralism and postmodernity and competing ideas and competing spiritualities and new age spirituality. You know, sometimes we, ooh, ah, we're so impressed by stuff. Ain't nothing new under the sun. God already, in the midst of a lot of gods, God said, don't have any gods before me. He declares his exclusivity. And I think, you know, many Christians, too many Christians, I don't want to say many, but too many Christians just struggle with the exclusivity of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is God all by himself, and there's none beside him. God will ask questions like this through the prophets. To whom will you liken me, and to whom will you compare me, says the Lord. God always declares his exclusivity. We were just singing, right? Listen to this song that Israel used to sing. This is a song. This is Psalm 115. It's a song. Now, uh, not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and thy truth's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? But our God is in the heavens. He has done whatsoever he has pleased. Their idols 
are silver and gold, the works of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. They have eyes, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses they have, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet they have, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them, so that everyone that trusteth in them. Oh, Israel, trust thou in the Lord. He is our help and shield. God was so committed to this that he had his children, his people, singing songs about his exclusivity. That's why I like stuff like you are God alone. That's why I like stuff like Yolanda Adams' only way. There is no other way. You alone are God. God declares his exclusivity as the first thing, the opening line, the first impression of the relationship. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the, underneath. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Just a clear declaration of that characteristic of God. Now, I understand in high school and college and perhaps even in young adult life, uh, you can meet the crazy, jealous nut of the opposite sex. So I want to give you a better understanding of jealous. I realize that some of y'all of a certain age might remember that movie, fatal attraction, and so when you see the word jealous, you think about rabbits boiling in a pot. I want to give you a different understanding and a way to think about jealousy. Remember, we start with, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And so you are who you are because of me. And based upon that reality, I am calling forth your commitment to me. God's jealousy is not the jealousy of one who is unfounded in having such jealousy. It is the jealousy of one who in the beginning created all things. And so the heavens and the earth and all of creation is his and he can call forth the loyalty from that. It is the jealousy of one who delivered them in the modern context of the contemporary Christian. It is the one who has given us new life in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of sins, sanctification, uh, ever-living intercessor at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us, the constant peace and assurance of salvation, the conviction and guidance of the Holy Spirit, the lovely life of his living word. It is that God who calls forth exclusivity, and he, oh, he, he earns that. He deserves that, and it's not outrageous for him to call forth that. Yeah. That dude or that chick you met last week, if they think they own you, they crazy. But the God who is the head of the church, hey, y'all remember, remember, remember Paul's language in Acts 20 when he's leaving the elders at Ephesus? A, a, a shepherd, the flock of the Lord, of which the Holy Spirit has made you the overseer, which he purchased with his own blood. 
See, a man or a woman that's jealous over you is most of the time jealous over something that belongs to somebody else. God is jealous over that which belongs to him. He has the right, the authority, the positional credit <laughs> to be jealous over Israel who he has brought up out of the land of Egypt. The Lord God has the positional credit to be jealous over those of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation that he has redeemed unto himself by the sacrifice of his son. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So you all that are young and you all that are single, uh, that jealous kind of hyper person of the opposite sex, if you meet them, you still should think of them as crazy. But when you hear that God is a jealous God, you ought to think of that in a whole different paradigm and category. God's jealousy can never be inappropriate because he can never be desirous of that which belongs to someone else. <laughs> any commitment from anything he could desire, it's already his. When I was a little boy, we would have the offering time, and people would get their money. And I was growing up in Washington, D.C., a church on Capitol Hill, you know, upper class, middle class, bougie, you know. <laughs> even we would come, and they would come. And even if they didn't mean it from the bottom of their heart, we would still sing after the offering, All things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. So God's jealousy is never unfounded because everything belongs to him. What does it mean to have some other things before? Here's an example right here in verse 5. Uh, 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 yeah, verse 5. Don't bow down to them. Don't serve them. And I know sometimes when you think of the magnificent exodus and God's deliverance of his people, you find, you know, why, 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 why is God even saying this? And, and, and I know you like, why, why is this even necessary? Obviously, they know their commitment should be to God. He's the one who has delivered them. But it's so interesting that, like, you know, 20 plus 12 is 32. Twelve chapters later is the story of the golden calf. They fashioned this calf. They dance around this calf, they bow down to this calf, and they declare this calf. This is the God who brought us up out of Egypt. So that's why 12 chapters earlier in Exodus chapter 20, God is saying, don't bow down to things, don't make things, don't serve these things. So how can I maybe spot some idols? Are there things that I serve more than I serve God? Are there things that I declare or people that I declare more than I declare God? Don't bow down to them. Don't serve them. In Exodus 32, they said, this is the God who brought us up out of Egypt. The glory that should be ascribed to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the glory that should be ascribed to the God who created all things, they are ascribing that glory to a golden calf. The Bible says, Blessed is the man who doth meditate in the law of the, word of the Lord day and night. 
Where do we meditate? Where do we declare? Where do we serve? Where do we give our first fruits of energy and effort to? You know, I use this illustration, so my wife knows I use this illustration. You know, many, many times at night we go into bed, whatever, we're sitting there meditating. Uh, uh, she's meditating on her phone or her Facebook page, and I'm meditating on my phone on my Facebook page. Look at this person who did this. Look at this person who did this. Nothing wrong with Facebook, but, but wh wh where do we dominate our meditation? I feel like a day is really weird if I can't start the day with some coffee. How many saints are just totally comfortable and it's not weird at all to start the day, go through the day, and end the day without prayer and meditation in the Word? Don't bow down to those things. Don't serve those things. I'm raising kids. Well, we have raised kids. I like to take my kids to stuff. We used to go to University of Louisville football games, University of Louisville basketball games. Final four, women's final four, men's final four, because we good in Louisville. All, all that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, when we go on those trips and we drive or we fly or we get hotels and all that kind of stuff, I mean, you know, after your kids are about 10 or 11, they know that stuff costs more than $5. And, and so what I teach my kids when we do all those kind of things and, you know, they see me drop $2 in church. Here, God, here's a tip. They, they, you know, they, they, they see me invest in the University of Louisville, and they see me tip God. That says something, something to them about my service to God versus my service to the University of Louisville. My wife is the bedtime, perfect attendance, go-to-school, fundamentalist, legalist. So what does it mean when I, hey, you need to be in school? But, you know, I'm kind of laid back about Sunday school and youth group and them children things and all that Bible stuff. But you need to be in school learning that writing, reading, arithmetic. Idolatry is not just making golden calves. Idolatry is declaring things more than we declare God, serving things more than we serve God, fearing things or people more than we fear God. Listen to this from our Lord in the Gospel of Luke. This is Luke 14, 26. If any man come to me and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters, yea, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus makes strong exclusivity statements. Jesus clearly declares, I must be first. Jesus boldly declares, I won't sit in the second seat. Must be first. Here's an application thing to think about. The prioritizing of God in our lives helps us prioritize everything else in our lives. If I am, for example, 
a man who desires to love God with my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself and God is one, then it helps me understand that my number one earthly relationship is that of being a husband to my wife, but it helps me understand that God is one and my wife is two. Can't be any higher than two because God is one. The Bible says that a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and his two shall be one, and the two shall be one flesh. So as we begin to have these babies, and I love my wonderful kids, and I love my two boys, and I love my two nephews, and I love my daughter, and when it's like four boys and a girl, y'all know the girl gets better treatment, and, I was, and she's in the middle, and I had the two boys, and I was wanting a girl, so she was like the desired child. The rest of them kind of just came. She was desired and wanted. But if God is one and my wife is two, then even the desired wanted daughter, she can't be more than three. And I love the church I planted. I love the churches I've pastored. I love God's people. I love coming together to worship. I love counseling and fellowship. I love going over people's houses. I love their kids coming over our house. I love our kids going over their house so we can go somewhere. Yeah, y'all help the pastor out. I love all that kind of stuff. But those wonderful churches, if God is one and my wife is two and my kids are three, those churches can't be more than... You see how if you put God as the thou shalt have no other gods before me, number one priority, it helps you prioritize other stuff. So when I'm working on my Ph.D. seminars at Southern Seminary and planting our church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and I'm gone a day and a half or two a week, and my wife is being supportive and encouragement, and my kids are like, I hate it, then, you know, it's emotional to resign from your church plant, but it's not like a conflicting kind of spiritual decision. If number four is conflicting with number three, then number four got to be adjusted. If number three, and it helps you go all down the way. So do you see how commitment to God should help you think differently about hobby number 18? And preferred living arrangement number seven? And preferred job number five or eight. And person I might date number 11. You, you, you see how that priority living kind of helps line those things up? And if, if you're single and you're not married, I, I hope that you would give your parents, like, position too. I mean, I, we, we, we can't go all down here, but like honor thy father and thy mother. It is so disgusting. I mean, I'm not, I'm not disgusted with the world. The world acts like the world. But I am disgusted with Christians that just don't take care of those of their own household. Parents with children who are believers ought not worry about, will I be old and neglected and alone because my kids are too busy going on with their lives. <laughs> I know I don't get no man points for this, but for fellowship purposes with my wife, we watch some HGTV. <laughs> and it's interesting 
Two-thirds of the couples are just looking for houses, which is wonderful, fine. But it's interesting. I always notice at least a third of them, they look for houses, and they'll say something like, and, and give us an extra room because uh, in case one of our parents have some difficulties and our parents need to be with us. And I'm always like, woo, that ain't an everyday conversation. If we will prioritize God, it will help us set our other priorities. Let me push on. I should have asked your pastor, how long does he preach? I'm sorry. I preach like Mark Dever. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of thing that is in heaven above or the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. This word and understanding of the jealous God is based upon a relationship. That's the relationship we see established in the first two verses. This revelation of God is the initial revelation of God, and he declares his exclusivity. And this revelation of God, he gives them some clear examples of what it means to go after an idol. Thou shalt not bow down to them, thou shalt not serve them. And as we read further on in Exodus and even in the second stating of the law in Deuteronomy, he's going to give them a catalog of warnings as they get into the promised land. And I'm always urging contemporary followers of Christ, believe the warnings in the Bible. Everybody believe, you know, too many people think the warnings apply to, like, other people. When I ride my Harley out to Sturgis, South Dakota for the Sturgis Bike Rally, sometimes I go out there with the Christian Motorcycle Association and serve people and witness for the gospel and stuff like that. It's some places in Kansas and Iowa and Nebraska. It's just some places out there where you can just see a long way down the road. And in your motorcycle safety classes, they say always be cautious about your speed because you never know when there might be a hole or rock or any type of obstacle in the road. But, I mean, sometimes when you can just, like, see two and three miles ahead of you, uh, cover your ears, baby. Sometimes that throttle feels a little good. And you find yourself riding like the warnings apply to everybody else except you. But it's cool. I got good life insurance. Everybody has the tendency to sometimes think that the warnings apply to other people. God gave his people a lot of warnings about the idols and the temptations that they were encountering in the promised land. And you all who are familiar with the Old Testament, you know the Old Testament is the story of Israel, excuse me, and Judah failing to heed those warnings. And I want to say, lastly, in this passage of Scripture, 5 and 6, that there's consequences for not heeding those warnings. There's generational consequences. 
And I did my MDiv at a Pentecostal seminary, so sometimes when people talk about generational curses, they get all spooky. It's like one sinner teaches a little sinner how to sin, and so that sin passes from this generation to this generation. How you learn how to run moonshine? My granddaddy taught me. How you learn how to run it? My dad, yeah, yeah, it's not like, it's sinners teaching people how to sin. Or in the context of five and six, idol worshipers teaching people how to worship idols. I mean, when I went to college at Hampton University and we arrived freshman year and you meeting different people, Nobody just said, hey, I think my career and my financial status is my God. No, they were probably taught that by their parents. Since they were the HBCU, they probably grew up in a family that had not had a lot of opportunity, and their parents might have been the first people to have opportunity, or their parents might have been thinking that their children would be the first people to have opportunity. And they say, yeah, 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 your career and your social status, that financial standing is God. I got to college, and I could meet young ladies, and I quickly knew they think their looks is God. And I knew they had not read the Bible, because the Bible says beauty is fading. And I could look at your mama dropping you off, and that's you in 20 years. <laughs> Beauty is fading, but a woman who fears the Lord, mm, she shall be feared. No, no, no. Generations of people don't just make up idols. They're taught to worship idols by their fathers, mothers, grandfathers, and those around them who have influence over them. You know, I was watching a documentary on Chicago, and I imagine some of those dynamics might play forth in a place like Baltimore. You know, someone who's unloved and neglected, and first time they ever receive any kind of acceptance and communion is in the context of a gang. They're taught that the security of that gang is God. So when it says visiting the iniquity to the third and fourth generations, that's not subsequent generations paying for the sins of their forefathers. And that's not this kind of spiritual warfare, demon on the rock kind of intense, super hidden spirituality. That's learning how to worship idols from people who have worshipped those idols, and you perpetuate that type of thing, and you receive the benefits, or the, I shouldn't say the benefits, you receive the consequences of rejecting the true and the living God. Likewise, he says in the seventh verse, uh, excuse me, he says in the sixth verse, he shows mercy to subsequent generations of those who acknowledge him. This will be fleshed out later in Exodus and later in Deuteronomy and what many of you, some of you probably would use as the language of blessings for obeying God and curses for not obeying God. Let me urge you to think biblically when you're analyzing the world around you. You ever talk to a Christian and say, how in the world can our country be in the state that it's in? And you ever want to say back, like, how, can, how in the world can it not be in the state that it's in? How we get two potential, how we get the two major nominees we got? What neighborhood do you live in? They just like the people up your street. 
Liars, adulterers, fornicators, abortionists, greedy folk. They, they just like the people in your neighborhood. What do you, what do, what do, what do, where, where do you live? There's consequence. This is not just religious talk. There's consequences for rejecting the true God who made all things, and there's consequences for living one's life in submission to him. The Bible doesn't just declare this exclusivity of God in the Old Testament. It's all throughout God's revelation. We read of the song that they sung in Proverbs. You are familiar with Ezekiel, Jeremiah, and Isaiah, where God would sarcastically ask the Israelites and Judah in their idolatry, Who is like unto me, and to whom shall you compare me? And then again, the one who died on the cross for our sins. The one who people love to describe as meek and lowly, and he is. The one who we sing about being high and holy, and he is, is also the one who makes sharp exclusivity statements. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Sharp priority statements. If anyone come to me and hate not his father, mother, children, brethren, yea, even his own self, he cannot be my disciple. That's a radical statement in a Western, self-autonomous, individualized culture. Student orientation at Hampton, we learned Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as a pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. And the end of it is I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. Whoo! It's radical for Jesus to say, no, you ain't. <laughs> Jesus says, if anyone's going to come after me, then I wear the hat captain, and you take your captain hat off. I wear the T-shirt that says master, and you take your master T-shirt off. Well, let's just see if we can nuance this. If they don't do this, you cannot be my disciple. But I love the Lord. I love singing. I love church. Jesus told the religious leaders, y'all worship the Lord with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. Everybody know the difference between a gesture and what's really in your heart? I'm getting these W-2s, 1099s, all that kind of stuff. I mean, I'm going to make a gesture on April 14th, but ain't nothing going to be in my heart. Almost 50. April 14th is still just childlike obedience to God. Written under Caesar the things that belong to Caesar. I don't like it. I feel good about it. I think government is wasteful. I like city taxes more than federal taxes. I wish I could just designate, send my money straight to the Department of Defense. All I, can, all I think they do well is protect us, sort of, kind of, in a way. No. 
Jesus says, you can't be my disciple lest you take off the captain hat, lest you take off the master hat and follow me. So I want to make the happy assumption that there are many followers of Christ in this place. But I don't want to make a comprehensive, exhaustive assumption. And so if you're here today and you're not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I offer Christ to you. I'm not offering what Oprah's offering, a new age sage who'll give you some spiritual wisdom. I'm offering the only Savior who can save you from your sins and make you right with God. Now, I need to tell you this because I know we're Americans and we're used to Burger King having it our way. You have to come to him on his terms. And I just read you some of his terms. He must be first. If anyone's going to come to me, you must love me more than anyone. And you must love me more than the man or the woman in the mirror. And so in whatever way that you do this at your church, I'm going to turn it over to the garden. And uh, I want to invite you. If you know you need to be forgiven of sin, I want to invite you to trust the only one who is able to forgive sin, the Lord Jesus Christ. We sang earlier about his death. He died on the cross that he might pay the sin of God's people. We just celebrated Christmas. He came that he might deal with the sin of God's people. His name shall be Jesus, and he shall save his people from their sins, is what the angel said. So I invite you today, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ that you need salvation. If you are already a follower of Jesus Christ, I invite you today to be reminded. He won't sit in the second, third, or fourth seat. Any language, any time period, the church has had this one most concise affirmation of faith. I'm thankful for the Baptist faith and message. There's a few copies if somebody needs one. But the church has had this most essential nugget of a confession of faith. Jesus is Lord. Anytime, any language, Roman Catholic tradition, Eastern Orthodox tradition, Protestant tradition, ancient tradition, medieval tradition, right now tradition. Jesus is Lord. And that simple three-word proclamation says, no one else is. And in parentheses, because we, I know how we are, no one else is, and in parentheses, and that includes me. And so how does the relationship start? I changed you, have no other gods before me, don't think about serving idols. And if you do, there will be consequences. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, Father, thank you for the precious praise of your name this morning. And I pray that the declaration 
of your perfect, holy, jealous character would be sweet to your people. And I pray if we are convicted because of any idols or things that we value too much in our lives or people that we value too much in our lives, may that conviction be sweet and may we bow to the leading of your spirit. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.